people uh, are excited to talk about this. The elephant in the room. This is mm-hmm. this is the thing. I feel like so much has happened around AI so fast that this conversation and just really holding the space to talk about some of these kind of the the darker side, uh, if you will, of AI. I feel like that the timing is the timing is now. So. Um, allow me to get us officially kicked off. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Kalia Garrido, and I head up marketing and events here at Great Data Minds, which is now a Hike 2 company. Uh, Great Data Minds is a collective of passionate data activists, and we're on the mission to modernize the world of data. Uh, we do this in a couple ways. We have services um, around strategic planning, education, and the deployment of critical data projects, and this happens over at hike2.com. Um, and then in addition to our data services, of course, a little commercial on Hive 2 is that we are a fully functional, best-in-class innovation consultancy, and we specialize in digital transformation, strategy, design, and implementations. Now, when it comes over to our uh, data and analytics community, content and conversation, as well as events, just like the one that we're here to, to see today, that all happens over at greatdataminds.com. A little bit of housekeeping as we get kicked off. This is a webinar, so of course your cameras and microphones are off, but man, do we want to hear from you. We know people have passionate opinions around these um, topics specifically, so we welcome you to submit your questions through the Q&A. If you use the chat, it's even better because then your fellow participants or attendees on the line can see um, what you write, and we've seen some really beautiful kind of cross-dialogue happening as we go through our conversation. We will also reserve a little bit of time at the end of the session for a more formal Q&A. So if you'd like to hold off for that, you can do that as well. Um, And so today, of course, we are hosting the next uh, episode in our AI series. So allow me to do some introductions with our esteemed guests. So first off, we have Michelle Moore, and she is going to be our governance expert today and really every day. A little bio on Michelle. Michelle is a transformation specialist with extensive experience in design, planning, and execution of digital and operational transformation, operational management, data management, and governance for large multinational organizations. Uh, Ringing the bell in from the security camp is Stephen Smiley. Stephen is the consulting director at ScaleSec, and ScaleSec is a cloud consulting firm specializing in complex cloud initiatives that deliver secure, compliant, scalable, and friction-free solutions. Um, Stephen is specifically focused on architecting secure and reliable systems with experience in GCP, AWS, cloud security, systems engineering, Uh, cloud computing, and um, also he is an AWS ambassador. Uh, We have Bill Franks with us again. Bill, thank you for joining us. Everybody, thank you for joining us. I'll let you all take the floor in a second, but Bill is um, here to speak from the position of ethics around AI. Um, For those of you that know, we've had Bill on the show before many times. He is the director of the Center for Statistics and Analytical Research within the School of Data Science and Analytics at the Kennesaw State University. He's also the Chief Analytics Officer for the International Institute for Analytics, and he serves on the advisory board of uh, many prestigious organizations. He is an established author of many books and a generally well-known, recognized thought leader in the data and analytics space. Last but not least is my partner in crime, Mr. Mike Lampa. He is our very own chief analytics officer here at Great Data Mind slash Hike 2. Uh, Mike is a true transformation agent. 
He's been working with enterprises to modernize their analytics programs from the ground up. And he's got a boatload of experience, both as an executive analytics practitioner and uh, a consultant and an employee in Global 100 Enterprises. So everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kalia. Uh, Bill, Michelle, Stephen, thank you for joining us today. How are you guys today? Great. Good. Great. Super happy to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward for this dialogue. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's actually, how, when we have four people talking, is it a quad quadrilogue? Anyway, <laughs> Bill, I'd like to start with you. You know, I mean, there's a balancing act going on here, possibly. You know, we've got the rapid AI advancement, um, and there's a need to have some ethical responsibility that I need to balance against it. Can you talk a little, little, little to that? I mean, as a a prominent evangelist and leader around uh, helping us all be aware of the need for ethical analytics. What yeah, is I think the, the, the big reason it's getting so much attention these days uh, is, you know, for many years, to the extent organizations were doing analytics more broadly, um, you know, uh, in, in the more traditional analytics, they were, let's say, a little bit behind the scenes. So I might go to a website and get an offer and I would know that that website was using analytics, but I wasn't really directly interacting with the analytics per mm -hmm. se. Um, and there's ethics considerations around that. Don't get me wrong, but I think what's really heightened it in in recent times is that with artificial intelligence, particularly the the, the generative AI tools that have come out recently, you have not just let's say quote experts within a company who are deploying them in very specific ways under very specific you know governance and security, which I think we'll talk about today, but you have just general people out there with no training whatsoever accessing highly sophisticated tools directly themselves. And so mm -hmm. I think this is uh, part of why ethics is getting such focus. It's touching more people directly these days, but also there's people making use of it that haven't had formal training or even necessarily given thought to the ethical ways to use that tech, uh, that tool or technology. And we have to think as an industry, how, how do we make sure that giving these people access is done in a way that is going to be productive and and useful and you know be uh, you know governed and secure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and from an ethics standpoint, that I'm not seeing regulations being passed yet, but I am seeing signals that there is some regulatory uh, work happening around the ethics of analytics. Is that a fair statement? So I think this is the classic case. This is why ethics is so important. The, the regulations and laws are always behind whatever's happening because by definition, something has to be there and it has to become important or visible enough or have had enough problems that people say we need rules and regulations and then it takes quarters, months to years to actually pass it. So mm -hmm. as it relates to, to, to AI specifically, there are pretty detailed proposals all around the world in the US here even, there's some blueprints very little of that is really official law or regulation yet, as opposed to guidelines or, or suggestions. I think we can anticipate many of it will become official regulation or law soon. I know in Europe, they're working things through uh, in here in the US. But this is to me is the crux of why ethics is so important, because there are many, many things possible today that I think reasonable folks would agree shouldn't be done ethically, uh, but that aren't illegal either 
simply because it hasn't been addressed. And so mm -hmm. you, you don't want to just keep up with the laws if you're an organization or a user of tools like AI. What you want to be doing is keeping an eye on what's what is actually ethical. And a lot of times what's ethical will be a, a much higher bar to cross than what's legal when the laws are behind. Mm, interesting. Okay. And and uh, Michelle, from a, from a governance perspective, um, are there regulatory? I mean, when I when I lean into generative AI kind of applications, what what needs to be top of mind from a governance perspective? Are you thinking? Yeah, I think it's really an extension of existing governance practices. I think the what it what AI does to governance is both broaden it and deepen it, right? So you still need the same frameworks in place but you're gonna to have to apply it more broadly to the organization because anybody can can start to use AI, generate AI, use it for input. You know, you need more controls around that. Mm -hmm. You also need to have more controls around the traceability so that you know where the information has come from, how it was derived. So you can be careful about things like biases, et cetera, that are part of the ethics discussion. Mm -hmm. And then it also is deepening, right? Because you need to get it more broadly understood across the organization and through all the systems because you could have inputs coming in from other sources, right? That you don't necessarily know. So monitoring um, inflow and outflow of data from the organization and how it's actually getting into core systems is gonna be a key piece of making sure your governance program is inclusive of AI as a as a tool set, right, or a mm -hmm. tool that users may use. Yeah, yeah. So so far, I've not heard either of you say, "Be careful" uh, or "Stay away from generative AI." But I'm hearing, I think I'm starting to pick up a signal um, that lean into it, but be eyes wide open. Right? Yeah, I think so. As long as you know um, how people are using it or intending to use it when it comes to how it then ends up inside your organization, that's kind of the key thing, right? So you've got to create your own guardrails, very context dependent in what someone might put in place in terms of policies around ethics would be very different to what another organization might do just mm -hmm. because their context is different, their data usage is different, and maybe even their core values are different around what they think really matters, right? So mm -hmm. I think it is a, a how are you using it question to then define really what your rules and policies around it are going to be. And then that will define the breadth and depth of your program. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's a fluctuating breadth and depth that I, I suspect as I keep seeing all these different kinds of use cases pop and uh, generate. I mean, even my, myself, I had it write code for me the other day and it was pretty darn accurate. Yeah. Cause I want to build demonstration data sets. Mm. And it was like, oh, this is pretty cool. But I gave it, you know, of course it's Python. I don't know what to do with Python. So I gave it to somebody that <laughs> knew what to do with it. Um, but um, the, the, the breadth and the depth message that you sent out uh, really resonates with me. Cause uh, I don't think we've experienced all the potential of this technology. Mm. Yet, right. Yeah. Um, Stephen, from a security perspective, um, uh, I don't know about all of you guys, but Gen AI came to my attention, I think it was in February of this year. 
And it came out of nowhere for me. Next thing I knew, I had, had build offers around it, you know, consulting offers, and I didn't even know mm-hmm. what the heck it is. Did it also come out of nowhere from the security industry experts and frameworks, Stephen? Well, <clears throat> I would say no, right? So many of us have been following this for a long time, but we have had just a recent explosion in their capability and just the number of people using it and applying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that introduces all sorts of risks, right? Because that means that uh, many of those people were not thinking about it before and thinking about its implications. So um, so yeah, so that so there's just been a number of new um, incidents of, of risk, right, that we need to consider, right? And many of those are familiar risks, I would say, right? So things like access control to your data that's being put into a a model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've been thinking about data access control for a long time, mm-hmm. um, but now it's just proliferating into so many more places, right? And, and many of these risks are still emerging, I would say. For example, there's been a lot of talk lately about extracting training data out of models, right? Initially, it didn't appear as though that training data um, would be extracted very effectively out of models, right? So, it, you know, we were thinking, okay, it's building a representation of this model, but um, but it's going to be difficult to get it back out, right? Um, and now people are doing attacks like repeating a word indefinitely, and then at some point the model spits out just raw training data that might have included personally identifiable information or, you know, any other like sensitive information. And so that is a risk that people just weren't thinking about too much, um, even a couple weeks ago or months ago. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now organizations are thinking, well, if I fine tune a model, if I, if I put my proprietary data into this, will someone be able to pull it back out? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, and that's one of the big, use cases that we're seeing. Um, so retrieve, retrieval augmented generation or, or RAG seems to be a very promising application, right? I can take my company's data, put that into this model, and then allow my employees to you know, converse with something that has access to all of our data, right? Mm-hmm. And that, wow, if that, the promise of that is powerful. Right. But if that means that they can also, you know, extract all of this data, it completely blows out of the water all of the ways that we thought about access control before. Mm. Right. Because it has all of them. And how do I distinguish the users? So um, so we have we have familiar risks and emerging risks. And we're still figuring you you probably have to consider in there also the hallucinate hallucination effect. Right. Because if you're basing it off of a set of data, now people start using it and augmenting the output, and then it's going back into systems. Now you need some sort of assurance that what they're ending up putting in the system is still valid and accurate, right? Precisely. And and that's why the RAG application is so interesting, because it actually kind of sits at some of the current weaknesses of uh, LLMs. And, And I think that it's possible that we'll overcome these things. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that's why it's, you know, we're being hesitant to, to jump right into um, using these, especially if we're putting sensitive data into things, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, you know, anything that goes in 
we need to be prepared for it to come back out mm. and uh, and we need to consider that. Yeah. So I'm opening it up to all three of you. I mean, is Gen AI really creating new risks? I mean, is, is this stuff that we've never, you know, really kind of thought about it before from a compliance and an ethics and a security perspective? Well, I'll throw out, I think one thing that is a new risk is that, you know, most of our historical data, it is what it is. It might have errors and so forth, but th those errors were inherent in that the data was was miscaptured or it got transferred wrong. But but th th those errors are also, you know, easily identifiable if you're if you have processes, to, uh, you know, to to find those errors. Mm -hmm. I think the the new risk in a way is especially with the language model. So when people generate an image, I think they understand that that image is fake from start to end and was probabilistically generated. I think the risk with LLMs in particular is that people are assuming because it sounds really good most times that it is a specifically factual based narrative that's been repeated back to them when in fact it's a probabilistically generated answer to a question that can have fundamental errors in it. Mm. And so I think that's where there's a new risk here is that we're getting answers um, you know, I predict with a classic model, I know that the data inputs went in and I'm going to get a, a projected response and I can investigate what happened. But, uh, a lot of this, this text that comes out of the LLMs, it's on you to validate it and it can sound really good, but still be, uh, be incorrect. And I don't think most people appreciate that and have accounted for that in how they're using it yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, go ahead, please. No, no. Oh, I was going to say like, and, and one of the other elements is that even if they're not necessarily new risks, it has the potential to just automate the same risks at a much, much higher rate, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, there's there's been many uh, analogies here, right? But it's like uh, traffic cameras, for example, right? It's like, do we want traffic cameras at every intersection or at every, you know, foot or whatever, right? Does it Does that change the feeling that we have about being observed, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, we were okay being observed a little bit, but suddenly when we're observed everywhere, um, it, it feels different. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot more incident, right? Mm -hmm. And we also had um, a similar debate in the like military intelligence community where we asked, you know, do um, cyber attacks represent a new type of threat to um, intelligence or warfare, right? And it's like, well, one of the differences is that they can be automated and done at such an incredible rate mm. that um, whereas an individual might have been able to do that, now they can automate millions or billions of cases, right? Mm. Um, and so I, I feel like there's, a, there's analogies there where we can learn from these other um, thought experiments as we go into this kind of new uh, uncharted waters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that the newness of the risk is, um, if I capture some of what you just said and add one thing to it, is scale, which is what you're talking about. There's just now a lot more of the same thing. Um, and it can come from many different places where before you had more control over the places that it, the risk was coming from. Mm -hmm. Then there's the the question of veracity, which Bill was speaking about. You know, you got to question more things actually now because you can't assume that it is actual fact. It looks like facts, but is it fact? Mm -hmm. And then there's the the third one I would say is the application and usage risk. How is the output being used and how was the output actually generated? So things around 
Are we building in inherent biases? You know, and we're using then that data to make decisions that now are actually sending us off down a path we didn't really intend because of the bias that's built into what has been generated for us, right? So I, I think it's those three things I would say are, are the newer level of risk, which is mm -hmm. the scale of the application and the veracity of what AI can produce. Yeah, yeah. And as as the three of you are talking, a, a question that pops into my head is, um, or it's almost a visual that's coming in my head is like this three, three bubble Venn diagram. Um, people as they're leaning in to the security considerations, the regulatory compliance, corporate policy compliance considerations, wearing an, uh, an ethics hat, all that feels like it all needs to be brought together into a cohesive kind of framework. Can you guys push back on me? I mean, or should we be focusing, I got to get the security access controls nailed down. I got to make sure that ethics, ethical use is happening in its own, its own pillar. And I got governance kind of overseeing the, the, the insurance of security and ethics. Yeah, I, I think they're completely connected. I, I don't think you can make decisions in one of those circles without involving the other two circles. I just don't think that's possible. Yeah. So, you know, I would take a, an approach that presumes you should be accounting for those three things together when you're making a decision in any one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they're just inherent in the beast. And then on top of that, that's sort of your foundational layer the actual then ongoing things like data analysis, usage in the business, yada, yada, that requires a whole different culture, right? That's built on this foundation that is those three combined areas mm -hmm. so that everyone, that's the depth and breadth thing, right? Everyone understands the risks that are in play and why the policies and procedures are important and why access controls are required. It isn't, you know, just for fun. It's for real reasons and people need to understand what those reasons are. Mm -hmm. and, and and we have seen we have seen some standards organizations start to put out frameworks like this, right? So for example, NIST recently released a risk management framework specifically for AI. Mm -hmm. Um but I would say that I would expect that to change a lot over the next 3 years, yeah. right? Like it's it's the definitely the version 1. Um, and so I would expect that to change, but I agree that there's kind of a consensus that we need to bring it all together. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I differentiate Mike. I think strategically, and as you develop your strategy, your policies and so forth, these three are, are so interconnected that they can't be ignored. Now that doesn't mean when you're down to some tactical implementation steps, it's very likely the security team could be working on a few little things over here and the governance team, a few little things over there, but what they're working on, it, it cannot be, uh, task without having had the broader view to mm -hmm. before you send them off to go do those things. So I think, you know, there obviously you'll have people that focus on one or more of the, you know, just one of those areas, typically not all of them, but as an organization, you, you need to be doing the planning at that macro level. Yeah. And, and um, throughout the course of the dialogue so far, we mentioned, you know, uh, we brought up the concept around establishing guardrails. Um, you know, I'm asking myself, do, do we expect everybody to just be good corporate citizens and look at the, the ethics policy that's been written and, and governance policy and um, uh, 
the guardrails, the evolving guardrails that are coming along around the proper use of generative AIs or large language model applications. Um, do we just put these things out and expect people to be good corporate citizens, as I mentioned earlier, or is there a way right. to codify it, monitor and enforce this stuff? So I, I think, you know, it's going to be both, right? And that's similar to what we've had with so many things, right? Mm -hmm. So we can centralize creation of policies, guardrails, you know, we can establish processes that try to be proactive with, with finding um, not just risks, but also opportunities and trying to like get a hold of those before they kind of go um, off their own path. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's, um, that makes a lot of sense from a central standpoint, but I still think that at the end of the day, we, we do need to expect that people, you know, people are going to be the ones doing those things. Right. Mm -hmm. And so those are all, that's always going to be the weak link. Um, and so that's going to take some, you know, training and education, but probably also, you know, empowering them to do what they're trying to do in a safer way, right? So giving them a clear path. If we just say, you know, hey, don't, right? People are going to find a way around it, right? Mm -hmm. We've seen that with security and all sorts of things for a long time. So giving them a clear path towards achieving those goals, but in a way that aligns with our organizational values, um, that's probably going to be the best path to success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a real transformation of mindset, right? It is about a new data culture and understanding that it's everyone's responsibility. I think, unfortunately, you're going to have people that get around or try to get around the rules. But I think that's where you need to have in place monitoring and auditing processes so you can go and double check that people are generally following the rules. You're not going to catch every scenario, right? Mm -hmm. But I think you do have to have some level of monitoring and auditing in place to ensure that things are being read, even if it's just reading the policies and making sure people have gone and checked the box that they've read the policy so that you can hold it up if they ignore the policy later, right? Mm -hmm. um, some simple things like that. But I think the training and education piece is a huge part of this. And, I, and I'll throw out too, Mike, this ties back to the whole thing, how laws haven't caught up. Well, corporate policies won't have caught up either. So yep. I think it gets back to whatever policies you have, whatever legal constraints you have, it's still necessary to make sure people understand they also individually have to be putting their own common sense and their own you know, ethical filter on top of things they may be being asked to do or they may see happen. Uh, that may not be covered by those policies or those laws that are problematic. Maybe some, you know, some new capability popped up as a, as a result of the intersection of this new data we received and this new software we implemented. And someone goes and starts to use those together that doesn't just because it's not prohibited if, uh, uh, explicitly doesn't mean that that should be done without some thought. So I think mm. that personal responsibility of of taking ownership of the ethics of everything that you see yourself and, and your team doing is critical. Otherwise, you'll inadvertently, uh, in most cases, I don't think most people purposely when there's been ethical breaches in the past, it's not normally someone trying to be really horrible. It's something that people hadn't fully thought through and didn't mm. think about the, the the end result of that properly. And then it ended up happening and they probably felt just as bad as everyone else. And so yeah. it's, it's really just good for everybody for folks to do that on their own as well. Bill, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, generally, I see that lag that you're describing as natural and, and appropriate, right? Rather than creating 
um, restrictions that are just cumbersome for hypothetical reasons, right? Mm. Is there an argument to be made that AI is unique in that regard, that like AI presents the ability to do things so quickly that you wouldn't be able to respond within that lag period? That's an interesting quote because it comes, I don't think, I think it's back almost to that scale question. I don't think there's anything unique about AI, let's say as an algorithm or mm -hmm. in terms of the capabilities that it has. I think what could be unique, and it's not just AI, it's our, our, our systems in general today have such speed and such scale that what seems like a minor decision can end up being repeated, you know, 20 million times by lunch. And what would have been a minor problem 10 years ago is a major problem today because of that scale aspect. And so I think in the age of AI, scale has picked up and AI has been scaled faster than other things. I don't think it's necessarily uniquely tied to AI as much as it is as AI has come out, it's present alongside the scale from the get-go, whereas other times it hasn't been. And so I think mm -hmm. I think this scale is really the, 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 the bigger issue across all of this. Things happen so fast and, and so massively that if we're wrong, we're going to be wrong you know, to a much worse extent before we're able to catch it. I think that the other nuance on that is the unstructured nature of what AI can produce as one of the outputs, right? And, and that is so qualitative and not quantitative. That is another area that's hard to measure, monitor, et cetera, because it requires someone to go read, understand, and decipher the output, right? Mm -hmm. You can't have another machine do it because you're just gonna repeat the same thing again. So there's something around the unstructured nature combined with scale as well, that creates a little bit different scenario to deal with, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because one of the conversations I've been having with my customers lately is, you know, they'll say, well, we're not really using this. <laughs> So um, we're not super concerned about putting these things in place yet, right? And when that happens, I'll call you. Mm. And and my reply has been, well, it might mm. be happening and you're not aware of it. How do you know? <laughs> right? Mm. Um, and if it does start happening, how will you know? And what what could be the impact to you, your business, you know, the the that your organization um, in the time that it takes for you to detect that? and then put controls in place, mm -hmm. right? And if that if the answer to that is significant, then you probably want to get ahead of it, right? If the answer is, oh, well, it doesn't really matter to my business, then okay, it might not make sense for you. Um, but that's, that's a conversation that we've been having. Yeah. And it reminds me in the old days of when I did software development, working on an application that had a very targeted use, created, tested, released, you know, 90, 9% of the customers that use that application were using exactly as intended. And then we had this 1% that, that found a way to use it that was not at all what it was designed for. And all of a sudden they're having problems executing part of their business because they had basically hijacked a part of the application to do something else, mm. right? It was creating another problem downstream in the application. So users are interesting, right? They they know their their context and how they want to use something. They will do it regardless of the application, really, sometimes, right? So that I think yeah. that's the unknown risk. We don't know how clever people are going to be or creative they're going to be. It's funny, Michelle. I was thinking that exact same thing you know, when you mentioned. So 
uh, well, don't, we don't have to worry about this. We've blocked ChatGPT and Bard. Okay, well, you know how many other little models there are out there or how many websites that you interface with that then pass it to those apps? To your point, people are using it. It reminds me of the days probably 10, 15 years ago when we were first trying to get people to do analytics within, say, an enterprise data warehouse environment, within the platforms. Mm. And I'd have some IT organizations tell me, well, well, we don't want people to be doing these things or enable them to do these things. And I would always say, you're misunderstanding. They are doing it right now. Yeah, your exactly. organization is pulling all your data off, putting it on some servers and doing whatever the heck they want with it. It is happening today. And whatever risks you're exposed to, you're completely unaware of. Wouldn't you at least rather be able to see what they're doing and facilitate it as safely as possible? So I think, you know, this is one of these, if you put your head in the sand and think that people aren't using AI and or that you can lock it all down. It's A, it's not going to work. And, and B, wouldn't you rather be in a spot to see it and react quickly rather than, you know, see yourself in the newspaper. And now you're beat up doubly because someone did something bad in the newspaper and your organization had done nothing to stop it. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or even know about it. Yeah. It's kind of like, as you, the three of you just shared that last round there is like, let's lean in, let's embrace it. Uh, this, mm -hmm. It's got incredible potential but we got we don't know how to effectively use it necessarily just yet we have to learn we have to evolve the guardrails and and so let's lean in let's embrace it but let's give them an environment where it can't cause that the the potential for big risk is minimized because we're leaning and we're bracing and we're learning together but we all the tribe has to be all involved here. Right? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier, all three of you kind of confirmed there's there's a three bubble Venn diagram here. Um, um, so it needs to be triangulated as an approach. I'm also picking up that it needs to be holistic, but holistic, we don't know what holistic is today. So how do we nurture the ability to safely experiment with this technology. I mean, I, I can provide my perspective, which is just, I think we need to be proactive about it. I think we need to keep the benefits in mind and not just be, I mean, like this is similar to security for a long time was seen as the department of no, mm. right? Mm. Just, just saying no. And then people went around you. Um, and so security has gotten better for organizations that have said, well, we will make a, a way for you to do this. And, and it makes your job easier, faster, better, right? Um, so there's lots of practices that we've learned there. And I think we can apply them here as well, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can identify proactively, you've got a use case. Oh, this has potential business value, right? Um, we're going to do that with a secure partner, right? We're going to use a model from, you know, for example, so I'm an AWS ambassador, AWS just recently um, has put out new bedrock, uh, a new bedrock service, where um, they're taking great strides to make sure that data that goes in there doesn't go anywhere else, right? For example, mm -hmm. um, so you say, well, we found your use case, and we're going to work with our trusted partner on doing this effectively, where we know there's, um, there's strong security there rather than you go find your own provider, right? That we haven't vetted. Um, we maybe will pair you with our, you know, experts on ethics or, or so forth that, that apply to your situation and help you refine that use case um, in a way that 
empowers you, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so the safety and the acceleration go hand in hand, rather than just, you know, from a far distance, saying, no, or read this policy, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and do it in, in, in uh, alignment with that policy, that's just not going to work. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that the organizations need to facilitate um, sort of the innovation, right? The idea sharing of, hey, I think we could use it for this so that people aren't just off trying it under their desk to see what happens. They're actually sharing the idea that they have and you need really the mechanisms for them to be able to do that sharing, which is where the data culture piece comes in, right? If you have a culture where people are encouraged to come up with ideas around how to use data period, which includes AI, then you can actually get the right eyes on the idea to help facilitate the idea rather than shut the idea or block the idea in the first place, mm. because we know they'll go off and try and do their own thing. So I think that's part of that data culture conversation about it's not a bad thing, but we need to be aware of the risks associated with it. We want to help you with mm. your ideas, right? So that we can put the right controls around it. Yep, yep. And we need to be future thinking. You, you mentioned earlier, um, Stephen, proactive. We've got to get proactive. I'm, I'm, my sense as well, so I have to, it's a great opportunity to be more future thinking. Mm -hmm. Right? Because this technology enables that. And we have to figure out a way to, to, to promote the proper utilization of the technology so that the risks could be much higher. So we have to protect the organization. Yeah, I think that one of the things that AI has helped us do is distinguish between work that is that provides value and work that doesn't, right? It has the potential to get rid of a lot of that, you know, not very valuable busy work. Mm -hmm. um, and if you know, so, sometimes people are worried about, oh, AI is going to take my job. Well, if it takes your job completely, then your job may not have been providing that much value, right? Yeah. It was it was automation of things that, you know, are, are not super unique or special, right? Um, and so if, if once you pull off all of that other stuff, if there's not a whole lot of value add, um, you know, then you've discovered something. Mm -hmm. if, if it is, however, that means that you get to focus on that value added um, work and, mm -hmm. and use it to your advantage as long as you do it safely, right? And securely and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I again, I, I think that it provides um, exciting value. We can think about it as future looking and not be afraid of it. Great, awesome. Yeah, you know, on, on that scene, I always say, especially when I hear people, cause I, you know, my science, uh, background is data science and analytics and Whenever I hear anybody worried about it within within our field, I always just put out the question, of, all right, in your job, how often are you sitting around with nothing to do? And are you actually addressing all of the problems you've been asked to address, either individually or as a team? And the answer is always no. Most teams have this backlog that's huge. And so at the end of the day, even if, if AI automated you know, 50% of my job, 
I can then do double the use cases. I'm still only a third of the way through the total list anyway. Now I'm adding a whole lot more value. I've probably gotten myself out of some grunt work. I'm solving more problems. This could be a win all the way around. You know, my job's more interesting. <laughs> I'm getting more mental stimulation. The company is getting more output, but I'm not losing my job because we have so much to do. And to your point, if I have a job where there's so little to do that automating part of it puts me at risk, I really need to examine what value am I in fact adding if I'm dependent on doing a few very repeatable and automatable things by hand to stay employed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a great opportunity ahead of us these next few years. You know, I've always been excited in the data and analytics space, but when this, this baby showed up, I was like, holy cow, holy cow. Yeah. And I know it must've been in, in, in the making for uh, several years, if not decades, but the, the, the manifestation and the realization of, the potential uh, just amazes me. And I've been in this industry since 96. So um, uh, very exciting times, a little bit anxious, anxious, you know, anxiety generating, you know, but it's, it's, it's like a positive uh, excitement, anxiety, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was doing some data analytics recently and um, I was, I was just having a lot more fun doing it because I was able to use some AI tools to help me generate the syntax that I needed to like make the charts and, you know, analysis that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. So I was spending more time understanding and exploring my data and less time trying to fight, you know, this syntax mm -hmm. of queries. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that made it more fun. That meant that I had a faster feedback loop of exploring the data. Um, and I, I don't know that that's, that's nice, right? Like that, that was a really good use case. Um, and uh, I, I look forward to being able to do that a lot more. Yeah. yeah. I would say just that an overarching thing on this is, I think it's obvious in the conversation, it's a transformative technology, right? So it isn't like just something you plug into existing and continue down the road. Mm -hmm. It's It has the potential to transform your organization in many ways. So I think that's the other way it needs to be considered is, the, the paradigm shift that might be required to come along with it, because if it does automate certain work activities, this does have implications to people, right? And some people are going to rebel against that and some people are going to go with it. So you have to think about how do you facilitate that journey so that you get to where you want to go in that transformation. So, you know, and that is on all layers of technology, of governance, of security of the data culture around how you treat the data ethically, et cetera, right? It's mm -hmm. not just a tool and we're going to play with it on the side. It has big, uh, wide implications, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that has the potential to democratize access to some of these things, right? Whereas think people may have been gatekept before by needing to know a bunch of, um, you know, a specific handshake to, <laughs> to get into something. Um, if AI helps you do that and, uh, you know, a lot of people that may not have been able to break into data analytics or security or something like that um, now will be able to. Mm -hmm. So that's that's exciting as well. Yeah. I think, too, I've got on my list to write a blog about this soon is being really honest about what's actually happening. So I've heard uh, let's take the call center space. OK, 
I've heard a couple of companies talk about how well, we're not we're not going to actually eliminate anyone's job because we have huge turnover, like, you know, 50 percent a year or something. And what we'll do, we just won't replace someone when they leave, but they're not going to lose their job. And so on the surface, you'd say, OK, great. So no one's losing their job due to AI. The thing is, most of the churn with call centers is people may be moving from call center A to call center B to get better pay or whatever. The point is, when I leave job one, that job is now gone. No one else will get it. So yes, it's true. I didn't get a job, but a call center job disappeared. And as the industry all does the same thing, there's not the places for those people to go. And so I think, you know, that's one of those arguments I've heard. I'm like, yeah, I don't know that's really fair. No person will lose their current job. That's true. But jobs that people hold are going away and they won't be refilled. That is a job loss in that sense mm -hmm. that we have to account for when we talk about the impact of of what we're doing. And so I'm not judging the rightness or wrongness of, re of removing those jobs and automating them. I'm simply saying that we have to recognize and acknowledge that they are going away. And just because I didn't lay you off to have it go away doesn't mean that the jobs no, you know, is, is now no longer available. Interesting. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how the uh, federal statistics on, on jobless rates account for this. Mm. Interesting. So, Great new technology. It raises the, the bar around security and governance and ethics and transformation. These are not new things, right? And companies that um, maybe are a little bit less mature around the security access controls and governance and ethics oversight, um, maybe Gen AI is that triggering mechanism for them to level up their maturity. And sure. that that's a very good outcome, I think. Yeah, sure. You guys are amazing. Yeah. I love the the brain power on this call. <laughs> um, You're here, Kaylee. I don't know. <laughs> did we get any particular questions from the? Audience? We do have a question. Yeah, Palak has written into the Q and A and asks, "How does the government help make sure that the ethical requirements for AI are being met?" Who would like to take that one? Well, I guess I'll start looping back to the beginning. They're catching up, they're lagging behind, they're trying to figure out where the controls need to be, right? Mm -hmm. um, as usual, it seems Europe is probably a little head of, head of the US on that because we take a more laissez-faire attitude to letting business get on with innovation and, and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think, I haven't delved into it yet, but I know that there, there have been some new changes recommended by the Biden administration around this. Um, as Stephen just alluded to, NIST has some guidelines on this. Um, so I think it will evolve over time. Everybody's learning it sort of in real time, right? Learning what to do with it, how it's going to be used. People don't even know how it's going to be used. It's such a freeform capability. So I think it's a matter of time to see really to what degree the government comes in to put controls in place or rules and regulations. I don't know, Bill, what do you think? Yeah, well, I guess this gets back kind of to your point, back to the future as well. I think if 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 we depend solely on government to do this, it's always going to be behind and it's never going to be effective. So not that, that the government can't get involved, 
But, you know, I think we, you know, let's say us as citizens, take your corporate hat off. When you see an organization that's doing something with data, if you think that's wrong, you know, what if enough people think that's wrong? They can, you know, these days it's real easy to start up. Hey, did you hear what company XYZ is doing? This just seems wrong. And mm -hmm. soon enough, you can have the pressure on them and they'll end up. Uh, you know, adjusting uh, and, and so forth. So this gets back to it's everyone's kind of responsibility. I think, um, you know, over time, the government will slowly catch up to what was needed two years ago, but it's never going to be able to be on top of everything. And that's why we have to, the companies, the individuals, and then us as citizens monitoring what people are doing, we've got to take that control back and just say, I'm okay with you using my data. Or I'm not okay with you using my data this way. And then making sure that when violations occur or perceived violations that, you know, people raise that, you know, raise that concern. Yeah. And, and actually, just about a month ago, the President Biden did issue an executive order on safe, secure, trustworthy AI, wow. um, requiring, for example, the Secretary of the Treasury to issue best practices for financial institutions, right? So, um, and, and a, you know, a number of things like that. So they're, I think that they are doing their best to you know, to push, you know, figure out what those best practices are um, and push those out into the public so that people can start using them. Um, and I think that, you know, over time, we're going to start to see some some strong themes that the rest mm -hmm. of us will be able to, to integrate. Um, and so I, I don't think we're that far behind yeah. on this. Yeah. And I hope I hope uh, it doesn't, you know, like in the past, a lot of the regulations that have been passed are because of some legacy event that took place. You know, there was a hole in the system and it got taken advantage of. I, I really hope that that isn't the approach we take here, that we, we get much more proactive. And I love the, the concept y'all brought us. We all have a part in this. If, if, you, if you're seeing something that's a little funky, raise your voice, make your voice heard. Yeah. And, and I thought, uh, so I, I don't disagree with what you, what you said, Steve, but I'll just put the nuance that in the end, that's still, back to we have to be voluntary because in the US yeah. at least executive orders are suggestions basically and when the treasury puts out those guidelines of best practices that's not a law or an enforceable thing it's an official position of what's best practice which you would hope it's better having that than not having that and people would tend to follow it versus not follow it but it's mm -hmm. actually not an enforcement mechanism with mm -hmm. teeth and I think that's what people feel, you know, I think the initial question was really getting at how do we make sure that we're enforcing and it has some teeth to guarantee it. Mm -hmm. Even a lot of things okay. happening today still have a pretty heavy dose of strong suggestions slash voluntary, you know, do the right thing as opposed to those teeth. And I think it'll always back to it. It's just going to be that way for a while because the newest stuff, it'll take time before teeth can be put in place. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, great, great point. All three of you phenomenal job thank you so much i learned a bunch i got new brain wrinkles <laughs> um if we have if we have time for just a, a couple more questions we do see uh -huh. some coming in on the q a um uh -huh. and if we don't have time to address them all then we can certainly send send um information back out as a follow-up but we've got two more um in the pipe here first is from okay. alessandro it says how can small organizations keep up with ai developments does this mean hiring computer scientists to perform this role so um, this is one of the things that, that we at ScaleSec do, for example, is we try to be your expert. And if you want to establish a relationship with us, we can be your expert and you can you know, ask us questions and we can try to help you achieve your goals 
proactively, you know, both and, and securely. So that, that would be one of my ways to do it is that's, that's a great use of a consulting partner, right. To establish that relationship, um, you know, early. As an advisor. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And there's also, as always, tons of information out there, right? Lots of stuff on YouTube, um, lots of different groups you could join that are on this. So there's a bit of self-education. I think that's a piece of this. Mm-hmm. It is evolving daily, really, on on capability and how it's being applied and used. So I think it's a combination of those two things for small organizations, because you can't necessarily afford to hire uh, a data scientist type person, nor would they necessarily have eight hours a day worth of stuff to do, mm-hmm. right? So that does lead you down the let's do a, a retainer type thing or a one-off thing with a consulting company that is doing this every day, right? Because they're dealing with multiple customers and will have a lot more insight into some of the use cases that might apply to you. Yeah. And, and I'll say, I think this is where the technology and the acceleration and scale of things I, I can't recall the exact numbers, but I saw a study. It's several years old now. It's probably even more extreme where, you know, if you wanted to do a technology startup, even 20 years ago, you needed at least X million dollars in seed funding before you could literally even get your core stuff in place to begin to to do an offer. And now it's down, you know, thousands. So with the cloud-based offerings, uh, work for higher offerings, you can you can get a level of sophistication very cheaply and and without a whole lot of investment compared to even just a few years ago um and you know again have it centrally accessible no one has to actually come over and get onto my network physically and log on to my machine i give them access to my cloud and they could be you know you could give me access to your machines i could go code you something right now today from where i'm i'm sitting and that's just a fundamental shift so i think you have to get creative about what you think about when you say hiring a computer scientist or data scientist Getting access to some of their skills, yes, that doesn't necessarily today mean you've got to hire them and they have to be local and they have to be using, you know, your your equipment specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's precisely right, one of the reasons I, I love cloud, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like you you can get 10 seconds of a computer scientist, <laughs> right? You don't you don't need a full time one. Yep. Yep. All right. Okay, last question here is from Palak, and it says, do the economic goals of the tech community affect the policies of the government? Mm-hmm. It's a good philosophical... The classic tension. That's we a big one. <laughs> we know who's in there lobbying and, you know, doing their thing. I'm sure it does, right? It always has, to some degree, had an impact on policy. So it wouldn't surprise me what that is. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, we are a capitalist society, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> on that note <laughs> uh, I mean let's solve regulatory capture real quick yeah <laughs> this is a fantastic discussion everybody thank you so much for sharing your brain trust with us today um, great engagement great topic of conversation and stuff that everybody's thinking about and I think it's important that we as a community are holding space to like really address some of these things so Michelle and Stephen, Bill and of course Mike thank you so much for holding the space and, and having this conversation today mm-hmm. um, we got the question in the chat about recording it and it's being recorded we will post it out on YouTube um, so you can certainly follow us there and, and let's continue this conversation. It's yep. certainly not going away. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everyone. Have a beautiful day. Thank afternoon. you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Thank you. Bye. We appreciate you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.